This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, this is Doro. Just a quick reminder before we get to our guest today that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is on Saturday, October 3rd. Due to the pandemic, this year, the conference will be held virtually, and all are welcome to join. You'll be inspired by luminaries in health and wellness and take home real strategies to improve your happiness and wellness. You can get all the information you need at AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com. And now for the show. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Vice Admiral DeWolf H. Miller is the commander of the Naval Air Force's Pacific Fleet, the Navy's 8th Air Boss. Admiral Miller, known to his friends and family as Chip or Bullet, is a graduate of the Naval Academy. In his accomplished Naval career, among the many leadership posts he has held, Admiral Miller previously commanded the USS George H.W. Bush CVN-77 and the Bush Carrier Strike Group 2, and that's how Trisha and I know him. He was the second commanding officer of the Bush, and he and his wife Ellen are great friends. Welcome, Chip, to HealthGig. I'm very excited to be a part of this. Well, we want to begin because Trisha and I, were a personal friend of yours, but we want everyone to know you the way we do. And so we want you to start by talking a little bit about your life and how you got into the Navy. And let's start with Ellen, who we love, and we know she's a huge part of your life. And so let's start there. <laughs> Perfect. I kind of love her too. And, uh, you know, like to say, she is the reason for any success that I've had. Interestingly, I met Ellen when I was 13 years old. I was born in Annapolis, Maryland. She was born in Philadelphia. Both of our families moved to just north of Baltimore in southern Pennsylvania, and she grew up on a farm. And her cousin was my best friend and invited me to her farm for a picnic. And I saw this cute girl, and I said to her cousin, my best friend, I'm going to marry your cousin (laughs) on that day. And wow. so, uh, of course, unbeknownst to Ellen, and of course, he looked at me and says, she's too old. Ellen's a year older. So she's too old. So you'd be more interested in her younger sister. I said, no, I'm going to marry that one. So fast forward, we really started dating while I was at the Naval Academy. We got married 21 days after graduation in 1981. And we have just enjoyed this career, this progression, this journey of service for the last 39 years together. What made you want to go to the Naval Academy? It really was the Annapolis connection. So I was born in Annapolis, Maryland. My grandfather on my father's side was career Air Force, and his last duty station was at the Pentagon, and that's what brought him to the Annapolis area. At the time, my dad was a senior in high school. That's where my dad and mom met was in Annapolis. But there I was, eight years old. My parents took me to the Naval Academy for graduation week to watch the Blue Angels conduct an air show. There I was, eight years old, saying, I want to do that. And my dad said, well, then go to school here. And so I was one of those weirdo kids that at eight years old had a laser focus that this is where I'm going to go to school and this is what I'm going to do. And so I've been able to live my dream for the last 39 years. What a joy it's been. Wow. So you're eight and you just know this is exactly what you want to do. I know I said weird, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's neat now is you see the Blue Angels doing what they're doing to thank healthcare workers 
I stop and think, you know, wonder how many young eight-year-olds like me, they're influencing. I want to do that. It's more powerful than I think we sometimes think. So who were the greatest influencers in your life? Growing up, it's the same influences all of us have. Our family members, teachers, coaches for me. But to be honest with you, for the bulk of my life, my greatest influencer has been Alan. You know, every challenge that we've faced, we've faced together. Every move, which there have been many, <laughs> we've done together. And then, of course, you know, the parenthood that goes with our three children. So Alan's probably the greatest influencer, but who shaped and, if you will, inculcated your character? I think it was a combination of family members, teachers, and coaches. How many times have you guys moved? Yeah, I'd have to count. It's over 20. <laughs> wow. I know we've had, I think, over 20 moves in uh, just about 40 years. And the kids went to all different schools all along? They did. We were pretty fortunate, though, at the high school years. Our youngest went to one high school for all four years. And then we have twins. The older twins, they went to two high schools in four years, and we were very fortunate for that. But elementary school, growing up, they went to a bunch. Any of them want to join the service? So our son, Ryan, he joined the Air Force and served for four years in the Air Force, and it was a great time for him. He followed that up then by going to college and is doing quite well. So Chip, you've had so many leadership positions, and now you are the Navy's eighth Air Boss. Can you talk a little bit about what an Air Boss does? So in the Navy, we obviously have different career paths, from aviation to driving service ships, being a surface warfare officer to undersea warfare for our submarines our special operational forces, our SEALs, our intelligence, and each of those communities are led by what we call a boss. So I am the air boss who is in charge of naval aviation. My two main counterparts are the SWO boss, who's the surface warfare officer boss, and then, of course, the submarine boss, which I call him the underlord. So (laughs) that's how it's broken up. And so what my responsibilities are, we have a little under 4,000 airplanes, 168 squadrons globally assigned and deployed, and then 11 nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. And so I'm in charge of overseeing the manning, the training, and the equipping of all of those forces, which is about 100,000 or so folks that provide the support organization and those that deploy. So like right now, today, as we speak, we have five aircraft carriers and their associated air wings underway. That includes Theodore Roosevelt, which right now is in Guam, as we all know. And then, of course, throughout the United States, the various squadrons and training commands and everything else that goes with it. So that's where the affectionate term Air Boss comes from, but the title is the Commander of Naval Air Forces. That's quite a responsibility. A hundred thousand people. I mean, that's huge. I give that answer because people ask, what the heck is an air boss? I've done that in the past. And then I provide the answer and then I scare myself. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, that's a lot. But, but you don't think of it like that because you're surrounded by such talented and motivated individuals and everybody working together to do that man train and equip role across the board. You know, you are the community lead for all that in this role, but there's an awful lot of help that makes it work. Can you walk us through the path to where you are right now, how how you got to be the air boss? Well, so I started pretty much the first 20 years, we're just doing normal aviation assignments leading up to squadron command. You know, you work your way up through your flight training and you have your various deployments and learning your skills as an aviator. And eventually, if things go well enough, you can command a squadron. That's called 05 Command. From there, you work your way up to Major Command. And so for the TAC Air, I'm an F-18 pilot. 
by trade. You have a choice to become an air wing commander or the Navy chooses you to be an air wing commander or to go the nuclear power route, which is the route that I took. Both can lead you to this job as air boss. The nuclear power training track and all the way through command is about a 10-year process. And of course, I was blessed to have the best carrier ever, mm-hmm. the USS George H.W. Bush. And then from there, was blessed to be selected for strike group command, again, assigned on USS George H.W. Bush for that tour. And then followed up with some jobs in the Pentagon that I think are just normal follow-on type jobs and then selection here. Boy, let's rewind back to that guy that graduated from the Naval Academy in 1981. I never thought that, hey, I want to be an admiral or I want to become the air boss. I just tried to do my job. I enjoyed the heck out of it. I had a spouse that supported it and loved it along with me. And every day we said, hey, this is meaningful. Every day we say, hey, we're making a difference. And you know what? It's pretty daggum rewarding. So we just continued, and next thing you know, you blink your eyes, and you're the air boss, and 39 years has gone by. (laughs) If you weren't an admiral and you didn't pick Navy as your career, what do you think you'd be doing? Oh, boy. That's a great question. I have no idea. (laughs) I really have no idea. You know, it's funny, as I'm looking now to transition, you go to some courses, and they say, you know, you're going to have to actually interview for a job. You know, think about what's important for you. I keep saying, what's the ideal job? And I say, I think I'm in it. (laughs) (laughs) It's meaningful. You make a difference and it's fun. You know, I kind of substitute fun and rewarding. It's more rewarding now, but that's kind of how I feel. The way that you, when we experienced you on the carrier, the way that you brought everyone together, I mean, you made it like it was really family. It was fun, right, Dora? Every time we would be on the ship, it was just fun. Clearly, just being with you and watching you, you could see that this was something that was really part of you. Thanks, Trisha. And I'll tell you, you bring up the family part of it. And that's what I've tried to do in this job as well. So we do an awful lot of leader development work at the various ranks where we bring folks in for a symposium at whatever career point you're experiencing, whether it's a prospective executive officer or a department head. These are various ranks that you come in. We hold symposiums. And during Ellen's and my time frame, we've invited spouses and families to every single one of them because of just that aspect. You know, we always kind of say that we recruit the sailor, but we retain the family. But the family aspect of it is so, so very special. And I couldn't imagine going through this career without Ellen by my side. Mm. We know by looking at you what a good leader looks like. But what do you think are the aspects that make a good leader? Leadership to me is uh, it's a topic that I could talk on for hours. I've been really fortunate to work for some pretty amazing leaders. I try to learn from each. And even those times that you observe somebody that maybe is the opposite of that, you learn from that as well. The folks that I've worked for that I, if you will, put into that category, they were all inspirational. They all made me want to do better. They all had an awful lot of energy. They all led by example. I think trust is one of the foundational elements. You know, without the trust of others and their trust of you, I don't think you can lead and those won't follow if they don't trust you. I think one of the probably undervalued character traits, if you will, of a good leader is that they're humble. I think that humility makes you more approachable. I'll give you an example of that. You know, if I go out to a ship and I walk down the hangar bay or the passageway, they don't know who I am, but they'll see the three stars on the shoulder and I'll go up to those sailors and say, how are you doing today? 
And if I ask that same question to 100 sailors, what do you think they're all going to say? I'm doing great. They may be having the worst day in their life, and they're going to tell you they're doing great. But being that humble leader, somebody that you can actually say, no, really, shipmate, how you doing? You have that approachability, and you show that you care, and you're compassionate and genuine in that approach. Those are the kind of folks that I always tried to emulate and model myself after because they were the ones that always inspired me to be a better person. You know, I'd ask you the same question, Doro and Tricia. You've been and seen and observed and are pretty accomplished leaders in your own right. What would you add to that? Chip, you mentioned compassion earlier, and that's something Tricia and I talk a lot about. To know that you are in the shoes of someone else, that you're able to understand what's going on in their lives, having compassion for some of the difficulties, I think that is part of a good leader. Tricia, what do you think? I think you're right on with that. And I'd also add to that the importance of listening. I think a great leader is someone that can listen and hear people in a way that they know that they're heard and appreciated. It's interesting, the listening point, to expand on that a little bit. When we hold courses that I touched on earlier, I'll ask some of the mid-grade leaders one question. I said, when's the last time you've had your mind changed? And it's interesting, you'll see some of them, they're thinking, right? You know, wow. And I said, well, if you're struggling, then either A, you're always right, or B, you don't listen. So that's one of the kind of questions where you kind of assess, you know, hey, am I a listening leader? Am I somebody that can, hey, I may not have the best answer here. There might be a better way of doing this. I always find that an intriguing question to ask folks when you're talking about leadership. Another mark of a leader seems as though they come up with nicknames pretty easily for folks, but I guess this is also your call names, right, in the Navy? Can you talk about that? That's a naval aviation thing is having a call sign. So they pretty much follow in a couple different categories, either something that you've done that earned you that call sign or maybe something on your name that would fit into a call sign. Or for me, it was the physical attribute of I was 21 years old and I was completely bald as I am today. (laughs) And I was a little skinnier and they said, you look like a bullet. So therefore, call sign (laughs) bullet. So it's been my call sign for pretty much all of my aviation career. Not everyone grows up with the same values. I'm wondering how, as a leader, you set core values and you communicate them to people or get them to sort of buy in when you're trying to lead. Two things pop into my head when you ask that question. One is at a personal level, and the other is kind of as a community lead. How do you try to develop the ethos, if you will, of your community? So on a personal side, the main thing is you do it every single day by example. It isn't something you sit there and go, hey, I'm going to lead us. You know, you just try to do it by example. You say what you're going to do and you do exactly what you're going to say and you lead by example and you try to hope that others find inspiration there. Overall, you know, my approach is called, I guess, a servant approach where I'm always trying to set others up for success. It's not about me. It's not about my organization. It's about how we're setting others up for success, the sailors and their families and the organizations that we are fortunate enough to lead. From a community standpoint, I actually put it in writing. When I go visit bases or ships or squadrons, I'll walk into a auditorium filled with a couple hundred thousand sailors and I'll just have one slide up on the wall and it'll just be that ethos slide. And I can spend two hours just talking about the ethos that talks about we stand on the shoulders of the giants who preceded us and who those giants are. And what I end up talking about is, hey, those giants are you. You're influencing each other. You're there for each other and your families. 
and I talk about we're military professionals. And what does that term professional mean? We are courageous, disciplined, and accountable. And I can anchor on every single one of those words and talk about, you know, what does courage mean to us? And what does that mean to us as people? And what does it mean to us as aviators? And what are we really talking about? And then we talk about serving with integrity and leading with humility and compassion. That's part of naval aviation's ethos. And then we end up with we excel in the air and we make a difference in the world. We are naval aviation. And so that's kind of how I try to inculcate and deliver the message and solidify what it means to wear the wings of gold and what it means to be a part of naval aviation. And I would like to think that it's having a very positive effect and that we're a pretty proud group. There's times when a leader is really tested. Can you think about when you felt most tested and how did you get yourself through that? Oh boy, Trisha, there have been a ton of tests. Right now with the COVID is a little bit of a test because it's an unknown threat. What we've learned through Theodore Roosevelt is we certainly have a healthy respect for what it can do, and it's an invisible threat. You know, I contrast that with your question as a strike group commander, our strike group were the first ones to drop weapons in Iraq against ISIS, and then again, the first strikes into Syria back in 2014. So those were different tests the tests that I felt better prepared for because I grew up my whole life preparing for that moment. So I think the tests, and this is why that character and your values are so important, is when all of a sudden maybe you're surprised or you face something that you aren't prepared for, you fall back to that. That's the solid ground that's going to make sure that you persevere and succeed. What's the most difficult decision you've had to make as a commanding officer or as an air boss in your case or an admiral? Another good question. The ones that I I shouldn't say struggle with, the ones that are difficult for me are the ones that affect people in their lives, whether it's telling somebody that, you know, their career is over or you have to be that disciplinarian or look at that young aviator who's just struggling and say, this isn't going to work out for you. But then you offer a hand and say, but you are valued and let's find something that you can succeed in and try to set them back up. But I think the ones that I have the most difficulty with are the same thing, I guess, as a parent, right? You know, this is a tough decision for me, but the answer is no, or this is how we're going to proceed. So those are the ones that I struggle with the most. But I will tell you that the good and the rewards of seeing sailors succeed, families succeed, the promotions, that that's the opposite. Those are the things that just make every day a joy. That sailor that you've disciplined two months later becomes your sailor of the quarter, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. because you've done the, hey, I held you accountable for this, but now I'm going to set you up for success and make sure that you just do really, really yeah. well and find that niche and what you're good at. And boy, is that rewarding. Yeah. Well, if you were to define courage, how would you define courage? I actually have an answer for that one because it's part of that ethos that I talked about where I say we are courageous, disciplined, and accountable. And so I break courage kind of into two pieces. And one is the physical courage, you know, taking action in the face of physical danger. And the second one, and really what I mean by that on the ethos is the moral courage. I define it as a choice to act with integrity and do what is good, right, and proper, even at personal cost and without a selfish incentive. And I can just read that off the top of my head because I say it a lot. Doing what's right all the time. Even though people say that, we still see those that struggle in that area. Good people that struggle in that area. And that's why that moral courage, I think, is one that needs to be elevated, discussed, and thought about. 
When you talk about discipline, how do you talk about it? I talk about it mostly about discipline in every single thing we do. I'll give you an example. Somebody's driving to work. They're speeding, not following the rules, running through red lights, and then all of a sudden they show up at the squadron spaces, and all of a sudden now they're going to be disciplined. You know, so I talk about discipline both at work and at home. I talk about discipline on the ground and in the air. For F-18 guys like myself, we fly a single-seat airplane. So, hey, if I'm at 10,100 feet instead of 10,000 feet, what's the difference? Well, the difference is you're always striving for perfection. You hold yourself to a higher level of accountability, and you're going to be disciplined in your approach to do it. It becomes a part of you. And it becomes a part of your DNA and your habit patterns. You'll find that you're just disciplined in everything that you do. And there's just goodness that comes from that. And then what does it mean to be accountable? Yeah, I think any of us could talk about the accountability. It's owning it, right? Not having excuses. And then working to improve, that continuous improvement. You know, the accountability piece, I could do a whole hour on. But the bottom line is just if you're in charge of something, then own it. The standard rules of praising in public and reprimand in private, but make sure that, you know, you are accountable for the things you're supposed to be accountable for and you hold people accountable for the things that you're supposed to be accountable for. A lot of times, you know, I get this, you know, hey, I'm working on this. Well, what does that mean? (laughs) You give a project. (laughs) Well, I'm working on it. When are you going to have results? Give me exactly what you're expecting by when, and then I'm going to call you on that day and make sure that that's what you achieved. And if you didn't, then what did you learn from that? And then how can I help? What help do you need? And then that sort of approach to problem solving, if you will. That's the leader in you saying, what help do you need? I hear you. What can I do to help set you up for success? Such a good question and a good thing to follow up with. So Chip, I want to shift gears a little bit. How do you stay healthy and strong? Well, it's been a little bit of a challenge these last couple of weeks. <laughs> it's, uh, Ellen's doing a lot of baking. Um, but, <laughs> I think with a disciplined approach to wellness and having that be a part of how we live our lives every day. So for me, uh, I'm pretty strict as far as when I go to bed at night and when I wake up in the morning and uh, I'm very much a creature of habit. I call it my battle rhythm and I establish one no matter where I'm at, whether I'm on the road at a hotel or whether I'm at home or whether I'm out at sea on a ship. But it's real important for me to kind of have an established battle rhythm. And no matter where I'm at, when I start the day in the gym, that's a good day. And my teammates that I work with can definitely tell when I've started the day at the gym or not. (laughs) Hey, Admiral, uh, didn't make it to the gym this morning. (laughs) No, it does start with that. And then a healthy diet. Ellen is a nurse by trade. And so she does a fantastic job of ensuring that we're eating healthy. And then every Sunday we're religious. And that's also part of, I'll just call it overall wellness and grounding is a combination of spiritual well-being, mental well-being, and physical well-being all kind of wrapped into one. And it's just part of how we live our lives. And it's a big part of how I approach every day. How do you bring that to your crew and the 100,000 people in your world? The one thing about the military, so I'm 60 years old. I'm at the top end of the age group. For the most part, our sailors, our units, you know, they're all fairly young and they're all fairly healthy. I'll use our carrier as an example. You know, we have a health promotion and wellness councils on our aircraft carriers. We hold classes from everything from tobacco cessation, sleep hygiene, nutrition. We have our physical fitness tests that we have to do. Just for an example, the medical facilities that we have on the carrier, 
It's a 55-bed ward, three-bed ICU. We have six doctors, a general surgeon, anesthesiologist, physician's assistant, physical therapist, critical care nurse, a psychologist, of course, a full dental place, dentistry, if you will. Our squadrons each have flight surgeons and corpsmen. You know, so it's a healthy place to be, mm-hmm. to be honest with you, on an aircraft carrier. There are gyms throughout the ship and exercise equipment, even in stairwells as you walk around, tucked in various corners. With that also comes a very strong religious ministries department. So I think kind of the combination of our chaplains, our health professionals, fleet and family counselors, all those services are available to sailors at sea. And then that connectivity of care continues when we transition ashore. I think it just kind of comes natural as being part of the military and the focus on healthy mind, body, and spirit. Part of that is probably why I feel so comfortable leading an organization that has the same approach and opportunities as I personally lead my life. Chip, I know there have been some mental health concerns recently across the Navy. What kind of strides are you making in this area? When I grew up, we didn't have a psychologist on board an aircraft carrier. And when I commanded Bush, was the first time I had a psychologist as part of the medical staff. And I'll tell you, that person was the busiest doctor on board. I found that interesting. I had a very close personal friend, and it was in the news a while back, Admiral Scott Sterney, who committed suicide out in Bahrain as the fifth fleet commander. That brought it home. And so now I you know, move into this job. You know, we have resiliency counselors plus our psychologists out on our carriers. What I'm trying to do now is get a mental health professional at every single one of our wings. Wings are how we, you know, our F-18 wings in Lemoore, California and Oceanic, Virginia. These are the various airplanes. They have wings ashore. And then, of course, they all transition out to the carrier. I'm trying to have a mental health professional that's assigned to every single one of those wings so that they're along with the flight surgeons, providing not just physical, but the mental care that our our sailors need. And it's right there on the spot. I don't have to call and wait a month to get an appointment and see a doc that I don't even know. This is something that's right there on the base, on the flight line. I haven't achieved 100% success there, but it's very important to me. And so it's one of the things on my to-do list before I transition from this job here in October. That would be very helpful. I think that, again, the leader that you are and you identified that, that would be amazing. It's an aspect that we need to pay attention to. And I want to attack this not just by providing mental health professionals. I want to interweave it into our training, into our schoolhouses, into everything else such that our sailors know at every step of the way, whether you're enlisted, whether you're an officer, that, hey, there's help here for you. It's okay to ask for help. And not only that, it's part of the setting you up for success. We're here with you. And so when folks, again, have leaders they can trust, (laughs) that they feel are genuine and looking out for them, then you know what? They'll reach out and we will improve there. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what you're saying is that when they join and they start and they're young, they start learning about this as part of sort of the whole infrastructure. Exactly. That's awesome. That's really awesome. What is your greatest hope for your sailors? Really, it's that their lives are enriched by their time in the service and from serving, whether you serve for four years or, like me, for just short of 40, (laughs) that you feel that I grew from this, my life is better because of this. You know better than most the value of service. You've seen the Points of Light Foundation and how meaningful people, when all of a sudden they go out on a project and they go, wow, this was really rewarding. I'm going to do more of that. Their lives are enriched by that opportunity to serve. 
whether it's service in the military or service in our community. I really just hope that their time in the military helps them in life. We're now living in the era of the coronavirus. How is the Navy responding to the pandemic? You know, I earlier talked about, you know, the man, train, and equip and the, the forces that I command, which include our aircraft carriers and, of course, squadrons and operations for naval aviation. So the priorities with respect to coronavirus are pretty much three, which is the first one is protect the force and our families. The second one is preventing the spread. And then the third one is maintaining readiness. On the readiness side, it's really important to know that we're continuing to operate. I mentioned we have five aircraft carriers and their air wings at sea right now. We continue to fly airplanes. We continue to train. We continue to operate our forces in the defense of our nation. And so that's very important that we're able to do it. Now, how we do it has certainly been affected by this. Very newsworthy is Theodore Roosevelt. We're learning an awful lot about the virus and about how to clean our ships and restore readiness through what's happening on Theodore Roosevelt. So I'm proud to say that the ship is clean and we're returning sailors back onto the ship. And so two negative tests, two solid tests, uh, well, if you were the admittance back onto the ship. But we expect to have that ship back up to full speed and back at sea here in the coming weeks. I'll give you an example in my own headquarters right now only have about 20% at work on any given day. So we have blue gold crews. So every other day folks work and we're maximizing telework. My inspection teams that go to various carriers around the world and do inspections on the programs, they'll go ROM in Guam or Japan or Hawaii or wherever they're doing their inspection for 14 days, conduct their work, come back, spend another 14 days in ROM. And so we're cycling crews in and out and making sure that they're safe. So all the things that are not unique to the military is kind of we're using across society or what we are employing as we go about business. People are talking about the silver lining and the lessons that we're learning. Are there things that you see that will stay in place for the Navy? We like to think that we're quick learners. So we've obviously established processes and procedures and guidance. We continue to learn mainly through, I'd say, improved communications. Three times a week, we have a phone call with all of our units in naval aviation. It only takes 30 minutes, and it's around the globe where we're sharing our best practices. We're elevating any barriers or concerns that we have. We're learning at an unbelievably rapid pace and then sharing those lessons across the community. Uh, we're bringing in commercial best practices. So, hey, guess what? Military, you may not have the best practice. Somebody else may. So we're bringing that in. So for us, we're working closely with commercial airspace industry to make sure that how we're cleaning our airplanes, that we're keeping up with the right equipment and everything else matches what they're doing. So from the goodness side, I think the communication that we had set up to maximize learning and share best practices is something I would like to continue. The other thing is, I think we've kind of proven to ourselves that teleworking works. Yeah. You know, know, oh no, I can't do that. Oh, guess what? You can, and it's working. (laughs) I think that we'll probably see maybe that becoming more mainstream than possibly what it was in the past. What have you seen? I think it's a great question. I'd like to learn from others as well. I think you're right. I think the teleworking is something that, for example, doing this podcast, right? I mean, it's kind of worked out that we can keep our podcast because when we first started, we were like, what are we going to do? Right. And now we see that this is a really good way to do it. But the other thing that you said, which was really interesting, is the communication. 
people talking more, people sharing best practices more. I think we're even seeing that door in our own little small business. Mm -hmm. You know, it just seems that people have kind of gathered on together and almost a shared cause. I didn't like the term social distancing. So what I tried to twist that into is, no, we're going to apply physical distance. Yeah. But but right. we want to be socially connected. Right. So okay with physical distance, but let's not lose that social connectedness. And when you talk about mental health and about wellness and mindfulness and everything else, that socially connected is really, really key. The last thing I needed was, you know, sailors sitting by themselves in isolation or quarantine because they were positive and not having somebody to reach out to or to talk to. And so we say that we're physically distant, but we're socially connected. And I think that's something that we'll need to be mindful of moving forward. Chip, we hear you say the distinction between physical distancing and social distancing, and we really couldn't agree more. You know, there's a recent Harvard study, and it talks about how loneliness is really more of a killer than even obesity and drinking and smoking, and really how relationships is the way for us to live not only longer, healthier lives, but happier lives. And Chip, Trisha and I have actually created a course called the Co-Mindfulness Project, where we study mindfulness through relationships. I think you're on to something, and that's really going to be rewarding moving forward. I mean, you think about what I have popped up in my head is, you know, the family sitting around a table with all of them head down on the phone. That's not mm -hmm. social connectedness. Right, right. Um, right. You know, when I'm not talking social media connectedness like that. I'm talking about the fact that you aren't alone and that there are an awful lot of things that we can be doing to connect in a meaningful way. And I'll tell you, that's a part of leadership too. How do I ensure that my people feel like, A, they belong and two, that they are, you know, a part of the organization? One of the things we did that was interesting under the ethos on naval aviation was we started a campaign that was We Are Naval Aviation. And we did videos which showed civilians that are working on technologies that go into airplanes that, hey, they're a part of this team. Everybody thinks of the pilots and the maintainers and what happens on the flight deck. But boy, there's a ton of folks that are a part of this organization that I really wanted to make sure that they know that they're valued. I kind of digress a little bit from the social connectedness, but it, it's tied in together from the fact that, hey, I'm a part of a team. And I really like that. Chip, we ask all of our guests two questions. And the first is, what is your favorite quote? You've heard me say my favorite quote. <laughs> so, okay, now you're saying, which one is it? As you know, the motto of the USS George H.W. Bush is freedom at work. Mm -hmm. And that motto was derived from Doro, your father's inauguration speech, where he said, we know what's right. Freedom's right. We know what works. Freedom works. And so for those of us that served on that ship, we were freedom at work. Mm -hmm. And so that quote is a part of me and what it stands for is a part of me. So thank you. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> and the second question we ask all of our guests is what is your favorite book? It's whatever I'm reading now. <laughs> I think that's probably an overused answer, but books just enrich our lives. The one I just finished is, of course, Pearls of Wisdom, which uh -huh. I think <laughs> was one. a pretty favorite book. Do you ever think of writing a book? You know, that's a good question. I have thought about writing about different topics or experiences. So I don't know if I'll ever act on that, but it intrigues me. Yeah, you should. <laughs> you should write to our, you should write it definitely. definitely. 100%. <laughs> on my desk at work, there is a leadership book. And of course, there are so many 
leadership books. But again, under the theme of what I've read recently, this one's called Becoming a Leader of Character. And it's written by, believe it or not, I'm actually reading a book written by an Army guy, by General James Anderson, Army retired, and his son, Dave Anderson. The forward's by Coach K. And it was a book that I thought was easy to read and talked about the tenets of leadership that we've touched on today. So I thought it was appropriate. Yeah. I mean, I think we all in this time and other times, I mean, we all are in search of good leaders. And as you said, that you tell your sailors that they are a leader, that we all can be that. So gosh, a book from you on that topic would be very well received. Well, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. You're providing me motivation. You're inspiring good, me. Good. <laughs> All good. Chip, thank you so much for joining us on Health Gig today. We just loved having you. We learned so much about leadership and we just admire you. Well, thank you very much. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you for this opportunity. All the best. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.